Hello, and welcome to With Open Mouths, the podcast, where we sit down with artists, curators, poets, and performers to learn from their creative journeys. I'm your host, Kanita Lilla, Associate Curator, Arts of Africa at Agnes Etherington Art Center. And today, I am delighted to have Yusuf Kadura with us. Yusuf Kadura is a Lebanese-Canadian actor, writer, producer, as well as a right leg below the knee amputee. Since graduating from the National Theatre School of Canada, he has worked in various roles, spanning both performance and curatorial work. He's also a producer, creator, and host of the podcast series, Crip Times. In this season, I'm using the change at Agnes, both physical and metaphysical, to think about creative journeys of movement and personal creative change. So thank you so much, Yusuf, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. This yeah, I'm so, I'm so excited to have you. Um, and I'd like to like start off by um, talking about what led you on your journey to the theater. Ooh, we're starting off already. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a very simple question, but then a, a question that an actor will uh, always go out of their way to complicate. That's just me being self-deprecating. Um, how did I get into theater, was it? Yeah. Uh, so I was never super into, I was never like the really artsy kid growing up. My, my, my parents were always really into like, you know, we go to the theater, we like embrace culture around us and things like that. I grew up in Ottawa for the most part. So we had the National Arts Center and all these great shows that would come by. But it was never really like my big interest. But um, I have a grandfather, one of my grandfathers down just outside, who lives just outside of Detroit, was a cop there. And he used to tell like these really fantastic stories. I know, I know. <laughs> um, he used to tell really fantastic stories about his time as a police officer or then like about his time like as a kid just outside of Detroit and all these things that he ended up going through in his lifetime. And getting past like the complications and like the major problems around policing, mm-hmm. uh, little baby me was like, I want to be a cop just like that because the stories yeah. were so good. Yeah. Um, and then it was years later in high school, I went to go, I went to the Stratford Festival outside of, uh, well, yeah, the Stratford Festival here in Ontario. Mm-hmm. And I saw a version of Othello. And it drew me in, in a way that, you know, TV, video games, theater never had before. And I started reconsidering. I was like, oh, why do I want to do this cop thing? And I was like, well, my grandfather tells really good stories about it. And I'm like, well, I don't think being a, a, that is what I wanted to do. I was like, well, it would probably be storytelling is the thing that draws me in. I should try being a storyteller. So that was my end of theater was, I was like, how can I go about telling these things? Mm -hmm. Um, And I was in my last year of high school. So I applied to the one city I could afford to live in Montreal at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
and I applied to Concordia University and I applied to the National Theater School of Canada and Concordia rejected me outright. And then NTS was like, yeah, come on by. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, like what, how did your um, parents respond to you wanting to go into um, the theater? Oh, shock, absolute shock. <laughs> it, you know, when a kid like comes up with like a big life changing thing, especially in the arts, you see it a lot of, uh, you know, your kids might be like, I'm going to be an actor. And you're like, great. How are you going to feed yourself? Yeah. Right. That was kind of my parents' response. Um, but, you know, after seeing like me really dive into it, get into it after a while, they, mm. they were like, okay, no, this makes sense. Yeah. That's amazing. That is so amazing because I, um, you know, I was introduced, you know, my parents kind of took me to the theater on and off, but mm. I think at like 14, um, I was actually in a stage production for the first time. Um, mm. and it was, it was like a proper stage production because like at the time, like during apartheid, you know, we had like different theaters for people of color in South Africa. Mm -hmm. um, so it was kind of like on the Cape Flats and it, there was a lot of like political unrest happening at the time, but my mother took me, which was amazing. Um, and like when I stood on the stage and I had, you know, like the audience um, in front of me and I was 14, I just thought this is incredible. Like there's, there's no feeling like this. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and it was amazing, but it was never an option. It was never like an option for, um, you know, like a, a girl like coming from Weinberg, like a suburb um, in Cape Town to do um, you know, uh, to go like onto the stage full time. Um, yeah, I, so, totally. I noticed that like, it, it's also like in the Muslim community too, that yeah. I grew up in, right? Like mm. in, in the I. community that's yeah. like, yeah. So immigrant yeah. heavy. And so like, you know, you, your parents do all these sacrifices for you and the arts is not really what's expected in return. Right. Mm. But that's also, uh, it's this, I think it's a stereotype kind of put on us by North America, right? Because historically, you know, thinking about like my heritage coming from like from the Middle East and all of that, like poetry is such a huge and important part of the culture. Mm -hmm. And yet we sometimes end up in these situations where because you're new immigrants to a place like North America, the response is, well, you can't. You can't yeah. do that. You have to be a doctor, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's I an think interesting parallel. Yeah, yeah, it is. And and, and but, but I think it's amazing that your parents did actually like they supported you, you know, like once they realized that it was your thing. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that was very cool. I mean, what what did you find like particularly compelling about um, like performing? This just the storytelling, like I you know, if someone tells a good story, mm. you can entertain me like ad nauseum, right? I will, I will listen. I will continue to listen. And I also think that in my experience, again, this is a very North American lens, but I feel like a lot of people get their education, especially historical context and things like that for movies, right? Mm. How many people, their context of like World War II now, is all from like Saving Private Ryan or, you know, whatever other countless films have been made about it. Mm. And I was like, 
okay, so people really pay attention to storytelling and they'll believe what you have to say. So it's a great thing for advocacy is one thing to be able to tell stories and tell them truthfully or to tell a story and put it in a lie in a way that that serves some purpose. Not like a lie to manipulate people, but like a lie, like, you know, how, I don't know, Iago might lie or something like that mm. in Othello. Um, and, you know, I, I also just love the entertainment of it. You know, it brings me joy and it's something new every day. And uh, I really think, I really think storytelling is one key thing that people across cultures can understand and across places and across class, especially. Mm. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, like museum exhibitions are also about storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's, you know, there's like a lot of, like there's a strong parallel between like exhibitions and performance, um, especially with like um, engaging an audience. But um, I feel that often we kind of have to be other people to like exist in those spaces. We kind of have to, you know, let go of our like daily lives. Um, mm -hmm. um, and I noticed that you you have also like your curator and yes. what are the, yeah, like what are some of the ways that um, like in your work that has brought your own like lived experience into those spaces? Ooh, well. To start off, a little bit of context about my curation. I never, I, it's something that I kind of fell into, right? I ended up curating because I found out about Tangled Art Plus Disability, this amazing gallery and organization in Toronto. Um, and I was brought on to kind of do a residency with them in the vein of, curation because to me I saw that connection between like producing that you might have in theater and like this gallery space and learning some of those technical skills um long story short a whole bunch of things happened the curator working on the big project had to leave and I was left at this point in 2000 end of 2017 beginning 2018 uh curating an exhibition hmm. um so a big thing for me and like practice around it is finding artists who want to collaborate together, finding artists who complement each other, especially if you're, or, you know, finding those connections between politics, between any kind of beliefs that they might hold or like people that might challenge each other. Um, and I look to the expertise of the other folks around. Um, sorry, could I get clarification on that question one more time? Um, well, like, um, firstly, like, what was what, what is like tangled art? Like, um, oh, what so is they're what? Canada's largest and I believe only fully disability-led arts organization. Mm. So that they have a gallery space in 401 Richmond, which is amazing. Um, I highly recommend anyone going through Toronto to check it out. They often have an exhibition up. Um, and they also, you know, they, they collaborate and do work with other organizations across the city. 
right? So like if there's a, a company that, you know, wants to bring access into a show and they have no idea how to go about it, they have no idea what ASL interpretation is, they have no idea what uh, live audio description is, something like that. Tangled is an organization who can direct you to the people who can do those things. That's very cool and very important. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. I wasn't, when I first left theater school, I didn't know where I was going to go. Mm-hmm. I was about to stay in Montreal. And then I heard about Tangled and I was like, oh, let me go to Toronto for a little bit. And honestly, that organization and their presence in the city, not working with them necessarily, because I'm not working with them at the moment, but mm-hmm. uh, their presence in the city is something that makes it a more welcoming space for people like me and the people who I love and want to hang out with. So, I mean, you know, it's so basically the space kind of facilitated you bringing, you know, who you are um, as you are into it. So it was definitely like that space. And I think that is, that's so exciting. You know, um, yeah. Because How many times do you have to like try and fit yourself to somewhere, right? Always, I mean, I'm always. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, especially, especially in art spaces. You know, mm-hmm. um, you you just feel as if, um, yeah, you, you don't fit. Like either because you know, for whatever reason. Um, yeah, you always have to prove to people why you're the right person for this role or this job, right? Or even to be there, even yes. to kind of like exist in a space. Um, yeah. You know, um, yeah. So that's amazing. That's really cool. So, um, what is your what or what was your work as like a teacher at Tangled Performance Lab? Is that the same thing as Ooh. the center, or is that a so different? So the Performance thing? Lab was something very fun. This was right before. No, this is right at the very start of the pandemic. So the Tangled Performance Lab was a concept created by myself and a very good friend and company member of mine, Hari Thomas, who's a director uh, who I met while in theater school. We run a theater company together as well as with a few other collaborators called The Other Hearts. Hmm. And um, I was lamenting the severe lack of professional training for disabled performers, right? Because, like, I, for one, I really enjoyed my time, like, in professional institutions and learning and, like, doing, like, Shakespeare and mask and all of this stuff. But you're pulling 10 to 12-hour days, six days a week, right? And it was something that I just barely was able to do. And, you know, there are some disabilities and there are just you know, also non-disabled people who can't do that. It's such a big time commitment and it's so draining and takes so many spoons, Mm -hmm. right? That it's really difficult for disabled people to get this training on that level. So we wanted to create something that was accessible, that was welcoming to bring in a small cohort of people to the 401 Richmond building. And we would do some professional training. We would do some text work. We would do voice. We would do some movement. Uh, We were planning on doing a little bit of mask and clown work as well. Um, These things that, you know, 
you can do it at a at like a hobby training sort of uh, place or institution or like take some private classes and stuff like that. But being able to work with the cohort is a very different experience. And we wanted to give that to our community in a way that was accessible. So we brought on, yeah, it was five artists. We brought five um, performers in, some who had had professional experience at different points in their life, some who had graduated from professional institutions, but because of their disability had certain parts of their training barred from them. And some who were just really great performers, but have been unable to access those institutions. And we brought them in and we started doing it. And it was beautiful. We were all in the room. We did some movement. We did some voice. Everyone was really getting it. And then the day before our next class, uh, the country shut down. Oh, uh, with COVID. Yeah, with COVID. So we pivoted to doing it online. And from there, we sort of had to, uh, you know, pivot the training a little bit more. So we focused a little bit more on dramaturgy and allowing people to write their work and things like that. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, since then, the Tangle Performance Lab hasn't really had a chance to uh, begin again. Mm-hmm. But I've been lucky enough to continue my teaching. I, uh, I, occasionally assist with teaching the intro to actors process class at the national theater school and things like that. So, uh, here's hoping in the future, once, uh, we have some of those spaces a little more readily available to us, something we can pick up, but that was the idea behind it. The people who were involved, it was interesting. It was lovely because the one thing that they all said was we wish we could have had more of those in-person classes like the first one. Mm. Right. I think we found something and we proved a beautiful concept and something Mm. that is valuable. And then, you know, illness and the need to protect people around us prevented us from doing it. Yeah. Um, I, it's, there's just something about kind of in person, you know, um, Mm. not training, but just engagement you know, that that is so vital and that we kind of slowly bringing back again. Um, But yeah, I mean, we just really missed it. I I wonder like how, is this how Crip Times was born? Like at at this time, Mm. like when, you know, the performance lab was kind of closing or- Crip Times, yeah, it came about when the performance lab closed. Okay. I had actually already done a very short disability podcast at that time. I had had this idea in my last year of theater school, and I brought on a few friends, and we created a three-part podcast called Walking the Space. Yes, yes, I listened to it. It's great. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Yes. So it's, it's, that was it's, my first really like, dive into it. And then years later, I was always like, I'll do another podcast one day. And the podcast, uh, the pandemic came along and the performance lab was basically shut down. And so I spoke to Kayla Best and uh, Christina McMullen, who worked at Tangled, both very good friends of mine, um, and brought them on and was like, let's do it. I wrote a brief treatment of what we wanted to do, what we really wanted to do was like recreate these sort of artist talks that would happen at Tangled. 
Mm-hmm. We'd usually have like a couple of months before the pandemic, right? Yeah. And it was such a beautiful thing because you got all these people from the community and it was such a crip space and kind of indescribable. And we wanted to bring that back a little bit mm. and kind of give something to our community. So that's what made the first season of Crip Times happen. Um, we did that in a little over a year. We managed to get the first season out. And uh, about a year ago, from today, actually, we came out with the idea of the second season, which we are nearly wrapped on. Awesome. Uh, we might have a few special episodes coming out over the next year, but we're we've we've created a, a good catalog for people, a wide range awesome. of subjects. And I must say, like Crip Times, just like what it gives is this like alternative space, you know, where mm. things are kind of. It just, it, it like runs on its own kind of time frame. You know, it's, it's just a different kind of uh, space. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's just, it's really lovely and beautiful. Um, but, you know, like as, as you were talking, I kind of wrote down a couple of things. And, um, I, you know, like the term disabled, like what does that, mm-hmm. what does that mean? Like what does disabled mean um, versus like, abled um and yeah I, I i've always wanted to ask that you know because it's it, it's kind of it's almost as if people assume certain things and mm-hmm. and and i feel that yeah I, I just don't feel a lot of people get it i don't get it um yeah you know that's totally fair i love that question because the one that i usually get is something along the lines of uh you know, why do you call yourself disabled, not like differently abled or something like that, right? That's often what I get is people people get focused on like the alternative terms for it. I like disabled and I also like crip. Um, for me, the term disabled is pretty much what it means. It's somebody with disability, whether it's a cognitive disability, whether it's a physical disability, um, you know, whether you're blind, low vision, um, hard of hearing or deaf, granted, like, you know, the deaf community likes to be referred to as the deaf community, the blind and low vision community likes to be referred to as the blind community sometimes. So there are subsections within it. But to me, disabled is, you know, all of these different things. And the thing that ties them all together is different from the norm, right? And the other big thing about it is that society is not built for disabled people, right? Um, The best way I can explain it would be talking about the social versus the medical model of disability. So the medical model is you have no leg, therefore um, we're going to treat everything we can. We're going to give you this medicine and we're going to do this and this and this and this and this and it's going to help you, right? We're going to use medicine and science to make you as able-bodied as we can, right? It's saying there's, the medical model is there's something wrong with you. We're going to fix it. The social model is, you know, you're in a wheelchair and you go to a bar and there's a step up to get in the bar right? 
it's not your disability preventing you from getting in the bar. It's the step up, Mm. right? So the social model is that, you know, I am disabled because the world is designed in a way to prevent me from accessing it, Mm. right? And it's also why I like the term crip because to me, it's like how queer people, how like LGBTQ folks uh, reclaim the word queer, right? I don't like being called a cripple, but I love it when my friends and I refer to ourselves as crip, mm. right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I just, I, I just generally speak, um, you know, like when, like I first met you and all your work and, you know, the way that you speak about who you are, um, it just, it doesn't detract at all from you as a person. The fact that you are disabled is just one of those things. I mean, you know, generally you are, you know, you are just a very vibrant uh, person. Um, and you. I, I think, really appreciate that. Yeah, no, no, seriously. Right. And I, like, um, and when I listened to Crip Times, I kind of got that, that sense strongly, you know, that, um, yeah, it, it is, it's people living lives, um, but like in, like, you know, it's, it's, it just kind of made me have to kind of think about, um, you know, my own relationship to like disability. Um, and I think that's really, it's really, really important. Yeah. Um, and you know, it's like, it makes me think of, um, so we were talking about storytelling earlier and mm-hmm. like all the great things around that. Why do I love seeing disabled performers? I love seeing disabled performers the same reason that I love seeing uh, a black woman taking on the role of Ariel, right? We each, based on our lives and our lived experiences, have a different view on the world, right? A disabled person has a different view on the world than a non-disabled person. A black person has a different view from a white person and all of this. And the more perspectives we can bring especially in performance right the more perspectives we can bring to a performance the more multifaceted and interesting that character is going to be or that performance or that story is going to be because it's not something that we've been seeing that much of historically Mm. right so but but i think also also you know the sense like what you were speaking about before about how like society um has this idea of what is normal and acceptable um mm-hmm. and how we all know that that's completely untrue and complete it's com- a complete fiction um 100%. you know and it's just like bringing in more voices just makes spaces more vital and more, closer to reality like closer to the way the world is um yeah so i i also wanted to ask you like how important your networks of people are to you to like sustain you and you know to to keep you like functioning as a creative um individual i don't think i'd be able to be a creative individual without my community and the people around me Mm. i mean especially the other artists who i work with but the community that I built up in Toronto, the communities I've built up in other cities when I go to Montreal. Um, you know, art can't be made in a vacuum. 
And I wholly reject the idea of the brilliant artist alone, mm. right? If you put someone alone and make them work, they might be brilliant and they might create some beautiful things, but I don't think it's sustainable. Mm. I've tried doing the wholly alone thing and... I can't imagine you being like doing by yourself. No. no. It's, it's so, it, it's uncomfortable, right? Because you <laughs> only have you to share ideas with or wow. to distract yourself with, right? Mm. And you need all of those things. And I don't, yeah, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't have um, just, you know, my friends, my art family, and then it's the, the community that I've found here. It wouldn't be possible. I would have given this up a long time ago and started making lattes again for a living. <laughs> so you did that at one time? Oh, yes. The only normal job I've ever had has been making coffee. Normal job, I say, air quotes. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, it's, you know, it, it is really important, like the people that you um, surround yourself um, with, like so, so critically important. I think, you know, like in the in the museum world, it's um, people's, uh, you know, kind of positions, vocations are very specialized. Um, you know, so there is that sense that um, if you're good at something, you're good at like one thing and you're good at one speciality, but it's it's completely impossible to do anything without, um, you know, the people, the people that support you and that you support, uh, especially in like in, in these spaces. And hopefully we kind of, you know, moving towards seeing that, um, you know, these are all like community spaces. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So like, I know that um, I saw online and, and you spoke briefly about other hearts mm. and um, I saw a photograph of you hanging suspended in the air and it just like that whole, the whole series of photographs mm -hmm. looked so fantastic. Um, it was outside, um, you know, there was kind of like these like, hectic ropes and big um kind of steel frames holding up everybody yes and, yeah um so that would be that would be a silks rig um brought by the fantastic aaron ball who's a double leg amputee and just amazing circus artist wonderful person um and that show was called the intangible adorations caravan which we just closed last night at brickworks oh wow congratulations thank you Wow. How, how was that? Like, how was the run and how, how did the audience respond? It was really, so I haven't done too many outdoor shows. The first thing I'll say is rain is the greatest bane of any outdoor theater. <laughs> right? If it's threatening to rain, your stage manager with good cause will not put out speakers, right? Aww. Or will not set up the tech booth. There's no show when that happens. <laughs> and we were only performing every Wednesday. In terms of the actual show, it was wonderful. It was great being able to work with my company to bring in other folks to, to do it. And it was this really strange, like, circus performance art kind of show that we were popping up in different neighborhoods throughout the city all summer. 
So every Wednesday we would drive to a different neighborhood and put up this show and then pack up and disappear into the night. Um, so we would have like kids and stuff walking by with their parents, like daddy, mommy, let's go see the, what are they doing? That's weird. <laughs> you know? Um, and it was really wonderful. Like I, I love, I realized this, uh, my first show back, um, after the first big shutdown, I was like, oh, the audience is such an important thing to have. This is why I don't only do film and TV stuff, right? Mm-hmm. I love an audience. And being able to bring in these, like, to just find people on the street and give them a little bit of magic mm-hmm. um, with the silk stuff that Aaron choreographed and the really weird script that Hari and I wrote. It was amazing. I will say the one caveat is that we ran into trouble with the creation process of it because it was an outdoor show and it was, you know, beginning of the summer and we didn't have that much time and some extenuating things with producers that I won't get into. Um, Basically some of our cast members got very ill. Some of them got COVID. Some of them got injured all within the same week. So we tried to postpone the opening of the show, but due to things that I can't get into, um, that was the fault of no one's directly on the team. We had to open the show when we had originally planned. So it reminded me as well how important it is, even if you are someone who's worked with access your entire life or, or your entire artistic career, or someone who hasn't worked with access, but you're like, you know, I know how to work without it, which is kind of how I went into it. Mm. I'm like, I've been in inaccessible spaces before. We can do this team. Mm. Um, after the pandemic, there has to be some really, really big changes across the board for all, all facets of performing live, right? Mm. We need to be willing to postpone shows. when things like that happen right and we need to be willing to make those sacrifices and those calls and i'll say with this show in particular i loved it it was wonderful it's a prime example of a piece that i would not have been able to feel good about or complete in the same way without that art family without the other hearts Mm. and our company kind of surrounding us with that yeah um access what 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 do you mean by access um and accessibility uh issues so like crypt time the concept of crypt time right um we used to joke about my family of arab time right we say we'll be there at 7 p.m we'll really be there at 10 p.m yeah Right. Yeah. Uh, Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Crypt time is a similar thing. It's disabled people need extra time sometimes, or for time to be flexible Mm. to be able to make it to something. At the same time, a disabled person might need to leave at a very exact time to be able to catch their wheel trans or something or to get somewhere safely. 
Mm-hmm. When I talk about access in relation to this show, I mean, um, you know, having half of your company fall ill or injured mm-hmm. and then not postponing the opening, right? Postponing the opening would be access because it would give people time to recover and to finish the rehearsal versus not doing that means having to run longer days, having to make the tech people do more work or the tech people feeling like they have to do more work to meet deadlines on time, things like that, Uh, which again was not anything brought on by anyone directly uh, in the performance or the creation of the show. It was it's an extenuating thing that happened because of the, I guess, higher uh, element of money and producership and those sorts of things, right? Um, but it's something where, yeah, that's access, right? Postponing something, giving something time is access, right? Mm-hmm. Telling someone, no, no, you, you might be over your illness, but you are clearly exhausted and still need time to rest is access, right? Mm -hmm. Just as putting in a ramp for someone in a wheelchair. Access is also kindness. Yeah. Access as kindness. I think, I think that everything that you spoke about, you know, it's just, and it seems as if um, it's like counterintuitive to need to consider like kindness as a, you know, yeah. as a critical part of, of like artistic practice. But it's um, such a huge part of it. I mean, what what's it like when you're doing a project and whoever is in charge is just an ass the whole time, right? It's awful. It's terrible. It's terrible. Do you feel like you can't work? You're paralyzed. You can't sleep, mm-hmm. right? That's an inaccessible space. And it's not because there isn't a ramp. Yeah. It's because you're being a jerk, right? That's, yeah. It happens. Mm-hmm. And it happens a lot in this industry, but it's something that we are seeing changes on, which is lovely. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that. I just jingled my keys there a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, this, I, I noticed, like, you know, the, when um, I saw uh, the images of you, like, swinging in the air, um, mm-hmm. like, Somebody wrote about um, the idea of robust accessibility. Like what does, mm-hmm. and, you know, I like actually looking at those, um, you know, the, the structures, I kind of thought, okay, well, that's what's robust. But talking to you now makes me feel as if it's something else. It's something, you know, deeper. Yeah. Here's the thing. A lot of times... I will, you know, or not me. Well, you bring a disabled person on to do something. Sometimes people will make the assumption of, oh, they're going to tell me everything they need, right? That disabled person is going to tell me everything they need to make this successful for them, and I'll do that. That's fine, right? As long as you give them what they need and have that conversation, it's fine. But I think we'll like a robust access is trying to make things as like prepare in advance is to me what robust access is. It's reaching out to the people who might need access and even people who are seemingly able-bodied because you don't know, 
And even able-bodied people have needs and can benefit from this stuff, right? Mm -hmm. It's about having those conversations with your team and the people you're working with early on and trying to create an infrastructure around whatever you're doing that can be fluid and can shift for different needs when they arise, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the usual thing, which is we'll deal with it when it happens. Yeah, that's that's just awful. And I think it happens like across the board, you know, just mm-hmm. um, like just in like the creative environment, um, you know, it kind of feels Absolutely. as if, you know, we're like running out of time and things need to look a certain way. And and I think I think that, you know, this kind of conversation is making me think about how things look, you know, how things look in a creative space and how we need to just mm-hmm. uh, change and challenge you know those kind of surfaces those appearances yeah yeah because you know we we get told access is a lot of different things right and we get told a lot like what we should do we should have power doors we should have ramps we should have these things but the real experts on access is going to be the people who need it so we should be talking to them first and foremost what what do you um say to people who um use the argument that um you know there are not enough disabled uh folk around to consult um in museums or you know they haven't graduated yet or you know um Look harder, yeah. Look harder and reconsider why you're doing that, Mm. right? Reconsider maybe the piece you're doing. I remember when I was in theater school, they did the Terry Fox musical, and they cast a dude with two legs and put a prosthetic puppet on his knee. Wow, right? And the thing that they said was, "Well, we couldn't find an amputee." And I was like, hello. I right? know. Yeah. And the, the, the choreographer on that, a wonderful individual, was a double leg amputee. Mm-hmm. Right. Yet the company still put up this show and they have their reasons and all of that. But I refuse to believe that it would not be a thousand times better yes. if they had put in that extra effort. Mm-hmm. Right. If they had, you know, and oftentimes with these things, theater companies or galleries or individuals will just put out a call and expect that, you know, if there's a disabled person out there who fits this, they'll see it. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily the case. You know, you have to put in the legwork, pardon my pun. And yeah. like, really, you know, you have yeah. to find the people, you have to seek them out. You can't just go, are there any disabled people in the room who would mm-hmm. like this job? No. Okay. We'll give it to Joe Schmo over here. Yeah, right. yeah, but but also like the networks are different. There's different, yeah. you know. I mean, uh, often you know people are not going to respond to like ads like that because no. you know it's kind of like word of mouth and like building up a reputation. And who is this? You know, who are these people? And where do they come from? And are they going to respect me for who I am? Um, you know, it's all of those mm. kinds of things that you need to know and takes work. Um, 
you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's an interesting conundrum, you know? And especially when we talk about like, you know, making a space accessible or like trying to like change a space or like bring in a certain community, right? We'll do like something like, uh, you know, let's say there's a company that's in a neighborhood with a high, you know, African population or something, right? And they're like, we're going to do like a food festival or something and bring these people in. (laughs) And they do the food festival and like nobody shows up. Mm. Well, you have to keep doing it. They're not going to show up immediately. You have to put in sustained effort if you want to bring in a new community to your space. Yusuf, like seriously, like a food festival for like Africa, like what? Who's going to go and eat African food if you're living in an African and, you know, it's like. You know, there's effort that has to be put in and that's a fictional example, but you know. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I mean, completely, that that is exactly what happens. It's very kind of um, lazy and thoughtless, basically you know, mm-hmm. um, about like communities yeah. and, and what they need and the kinds of things that they would um, not only benefit from, but mm-hmm. enjoy. Um, I remember you know. it, it a few years ago, um, all these theaters were putting in ramps and power doors and things. And they're like, isn't this great? Our space is finally accessible. This heritage building is accessible now. And I'm like, what about the stage? Mm-hmm. There's still a staircase that you have to take from the green room to get down to the stage and the actor's entrance, the back door entrance. But that's because they assume like the actors are not. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Wow. That is huge. That is huge. Um, Mm. You know, like just that kind of insight, even in even in museums. You know, it's kind of okay. We need we kind of think of like the physical space, the space. Um, around objects, this the mm. kind of eye level, you know. What about like actual curators? Yeah. What about the space for the people working in the back office, mm. right? Why are you giving them metal chairs that hurt to sit on for hours on end? Yeah. Buy an ergonomic chair, you know? Mm. Buy shades for the windows, put in an AC unit or something. Like, there's things you can do to make an environment comfortable for people mm-hmm. and make them enjoy coming in to create as opposed to, you know, showing up because they love the work, but dread the environment in which they do it. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, like the Agnes where I work is, um, mm-hmm. you know, going through like a, a, a rebuild. So, yeah. Oh, amazing. Uh, yeah. I hope we take these, these kind of messages on. It's, you know, they really important to think about. Um, do you have any new projects? I'm sure. I'm sure you have like tons Ooh. now that you've finished. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or are you well, taking a, a pause? I can't imagine that though. I, shockingly, I know. I know I'm taking a slight pause until November 1st. Um, oh, that's okay. I have a little bit of time off. Yeah, ah. it's nice, you know, yeah. especially past few years, I was kind of overstretching myself a little bit. Mm-hmm. But um, coming up in end of February into 
mid to late March. Um, I will be performing in Rubble, a new play by Suvendrini Lina. Beautiful story. It's about this Palestinian family in Gaza. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in Toronto, I highly recommend checking it out. Wow. Um, I'm doing a little bit of teaching back at the National Theatre School, doing the Intro to the Actors Process course. Mm-hmm. And from there, I'll just be continually always doing my work with the other hearts my wonderful art family mm-hmm. um we have a few applications in for different projects and things like that so if you check out our websites our website at otherhearts.ca or check us out on facebook or instagram uh we'll have information on where you can find our next weird performance art or new play Oh gosh, I, I've got to see you on stage. Absolutely. It sounds fantastic and, and your work sounds amazing. And yeah, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Um, I really love this. Thank you oh. so much for having me. Thank you. Um, thank you for making the time, Yusuf. Thank you. Thank you for listening to With Open Mouths. Special thanks to my guest, Yusuf Kadura for speaking with us today. This podcast is hosted by myself, Dr. Kanita Lilla, and produced by Agnes Etherington Art Centre in partnership with Queen's University's campus radio station, CFRC 101.9 FM. The music is composed by Jamil 3DN and produced by Elroy EC3 Cox III. Episodes of With Open Mouths are released monthly and you can find them on Digital Agnes, CFRC's website, and on your favorite podcasting platform. If you like what you heard, leave us a review and subscribe now so that you don't miss a single episode. We'll see you next time. They wanted us in shade. They thought we would stay slaves. One chapter, but this novel had...